Welcome back to Horizon Scanning. I'm your host today, Dylan Riddle. With Russian troops mounting on the border of Ukraine, we find ourselves inching towards the brink of war. While direct talks have yet to yield any progress towards the de-escalation of tensions, the United States and Western allies are pursuing every possibility to deter Russia from invading Ukraine. Within the foreign policy toolkit, there is, of course, the use of force and the threat of the use of force. But increasingly, the West has been threatening economic sanctions as a primary deterrent. The question remains whether economic sanctions are costly enough to deter Russia. To evaluate this central question, I'm joined by Alina Ribakova, Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute of International Finance. Alina is an expert in the Russian economy, having covered the country for a range of institutions, including the IMF, Citi, and here at Deutsche Bank. She's been a contributor at Bruegel, the London School of Economics, and the Center for New American Security. Alina, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Dylan. It's fantastic to be back with my Deutsche colleagues. We're glad to have you. Um, so before we dig into kind of sanctions and the impact and the current situation that we're finding ourselves in, can you kind of step back and give us an overview of the Russian economy, how it's set up currently, and kind of how it's fared through COVID-19? Thank you. So on the economic front, um, as you know, Fortress Russia's strategy worked very well in terms of protecting Russia from external shocks, but also imposed costs on domestic real incomes. As a result, growth has been subdued. So we don't expect growth of more than 2% maybe in, in the coming years, uh, just because there is no source of productivity growth and um, also real income uh, uh, sort of have been contracting actually for, for a while. So in the short run, Fortress Russia is working very well, very strong external sort of uh, very strong external protection from external threats, uh, if I may. Uh, but at the same time, medium term outlook for productivity is, uh, is dismal. So you mentioned Fortress Russia, which obviously sprang out of the original U.S. sanctions in 2014. So I want, I want to go back to Fortress Russia in a second, but let's start with 2014. Can you give us an overview of kind of what those initial sanctions were, what was targeted, and then uh, let's jump into Fortress Russia, Russia after that. So 2014 sanctions were unique because it levered uh, U.S. and European uh, position of being at the core of the global financial markets was Russia's core vulnerability of having to borrow a lot on the international capital markets. So at the time, Russia's uh, external debt that's mostly corporate, some government, was more than 700 billion gross external debt. So Russia needed to roll over, you know, a big chunk of it, of course, it was also short term, needed to roll over that every year. And where does it roll over? Of course, on the US and European capital markets. So sanctioning Russian corporates, state control corporates, also sectors, financial sector, other, other sectors of the economy of not being able to roll over that debt, being able to borrow only very short term had a massive impact. Just that year, 2014, Russia repaid about 250 billion in external debt. And that was not voluntarily, it's just because it couldn't roll it. Uh, of course, we had a contraction in the economy, uh, but because of that, also the authorities realized, wait a second, we need to ensure ourselves and prepare ourselves with this Fortress Russia strategy if this were to happen again. So, how, I mean, so how do you go about ensuring, uh, ensuring yourself from an external shock like this? Basically, uh, you know, I'm broadly characterizing here, but if you're an emerging market, the growth model is to go out and rack up a bunch of debt funded by investors in the US and, and Europe and Japan, maybe, and use that to uh, facilitate kind of productive growth or invest in things that are gonna drive productive growth going forward. How do you, as a uh, you know, emerging market or, or as Russia in this situation, how do you guard against that while still trying to maintain some level of development? 
Well, Russia is an exaggerated version of emerging market, right? Uh, it has a high dependence on commodities. Of course, the dependence on commodities has fallen somewhat since 2014. But still, we have about a third of revenue comes from oil and gas. It's about half of external uh, export revenues are also coming from oil and gas. So Russia has the opportunity when oil and gas prices are elevated to save that money. And that was the first response that they did. They changed their fiscal policy to the new fiscal rule where they accumulate extra inflows about, about 40, but sort of changes over time a little bit, but about let's say $40 per barrel. And they also moved to the bread and butter on the monetary policy onto the classical inflation targeting. And you might recall the Euro money gave uh, Governor Nabiul and even Governor of the Year one of those years when she was successful implementing that inflation targeting. So I think this is sort of the good old fashioned tools of very sound macroeconomic management. So this year, Russia will be the only country with current account and fiscal account surpluses in the emerging market universe. But then they also had to do other measures to protect their what they say, economic sovereignty via uh, domestic payment systems. Um, so yeah, let's let's get to that. The point on domestic payment systems, basically, I mean, pre 2014, as you you'd said. Russia was dependent on the financial centers in London and, and New York. Um, it was heavily integrated into the global kind of financial system. Uh, were there any spillovers post-2014, post um, the sanctions? Kind of what was the effect on the rest of uh, the global kind of financial market? And, and had something like that been done before? Well, uh, no, something like that has not been done before. And I think that was definitely sort of the first experiment of um, sanctioning um, a highly integrated uh, financial uh, market, highly integrated economy. Um, sometimes when we talk about uh, sanctions about China or Hong Kong, you know, the only example that people come up with is Russia, just not because they're so suitable, but that's because that's the only example. Um, so we've had cases, of course, of Iran, uh, Venezuela, and North Korea, but these are very different cases. So what happened uh, in terms of the spillovers is hard to disentangle, unfortunately, because about the same time, you had a sharp drop in commodity prices in oil price. And that affected a lot of emerging markets because a lot of emerging markets are still commodity exporters. In terms of the spillovers, this definitely had a big effect on ruble liquidity. So foreign direct investors from the US or from Europe that rely on liquid and deep domestic ruble markets, you know, they, they of course experienced shocks. Uh, and then also there was a lot of overcompliance where, for example, trade finance became harder because people were not sure what it means, does it fall under sanctions or not. So it took a while for people to figure out what is the perimeter of, uh, of the sanctions. And of course that had an effect to uh, corporate revenues um, in Europe particularly. And finally, we also had Russia doing counter sanctions where it banned certain exports from, uh, from countries and particularly a few countries in Europe felt the pinch more than anybody else. So the U.S. ended up adding additional san sanctions in the wake of uh, alleged election interference in the 2016 presidential election here in the U.S. Um, this time, the, the target was specifically ruble-denominated OFZ treasury bills. Kind of, how much did that really represent as an additional cost to Russia? Like, how, what, what were the uh, impacts after that? Thank you. So indeed, they sanctioned the primary markets first: external debt market, eurobond market, and then later. Uh, domestic office air markets. So on the first episode, the market didn't really react. On the second episode, the market rallied. I think the market speaks for itself, you know, what it's thought of the measure. Uh, but maybe let's just step back for a second. Russia, into, after 2014, was reliant on the foreign money. It did this perfect policy combination where it offered very high real rates, uh, policy rates, to 
improve the inflation targeting credibility, but also to attract foreign investors in the domestic office market, because at the time you couldn't do fiscal adjustment fast enough. But fast forward to where we are now, and also the, the times that you were mentioning, fiscal adjustment has already happened. So if anything, Russia is overfunding. It means it's borrowing much more than it needs to borrow. It's in surplus, right? Uh, it doesn't need to borrow anything else, but it's overfunding. So if tomorrow all foreign investors were to exit the office market, you would probably feel it on the curve, of course, but Russian budget will not really notice it that much. Uh, so that's why the primary market sanctions didn't really have a big effect. And potentially even the secondary market will not have such a devastating effect as the sanctions in 2014. So let's fast forward to today. There's a range of uh, potential sanction targets, and I want to kind of go through a bunch of them. I'm curious to get your take on what kind of impact you would see them having, um, you know, if, if they were to be enacted. So the first one that I think comes up pretty regularly, regular, regularly, is uh, expanded targeting of oligarchs throughout the country. Well, I think uh, individual sanctions followed out by serious implementation are probably potentially the most effective deterrent and the most effective um, um, sanction that you can do against the, the current administration. Uh, because um, many of these uh, people's families live abroad, you know, maybe some of them are looking forward to getting a second passport, they're looking forward to enjoying their retirement abroad. Uh, some of them have accumulated uh, a lot of wealth, you know, that not always comes necessarily from their sal official salaries. Um, so the U.S. putting the light on them and also going after their assets will have an important implication because in the end of the day, it's a group of people currently in power who are deciding without actually having been elected properly for a while in Russia. So I think that's definitely would be an important signal. That said, it's important to think about unintended consequences. We remember what happened with Russell and aluminum markets. Some of these uh, people are important uh, in their respective uh, markets, like aluminum or potash or, or others. And it's important, of course, to calculate through uh, what that might have uh, in terms of unintended consequences on the global financial markets. So what about more targeted sanctions specifically on Putin or his immediate family rather than on uh, you know, broad ol oligarchs? I think that would require important forensic work, and it would be fantastic if uh, people in the corresponding administrations, whether it be US or Europe, would have the capacity to do that, um, that uh, for instance, uh, forensic accounting and, and be able to, to go after those assets. Of course, politically, it will be an extremely strong signal and will make further diplomatic relationships very challenging, especially for one war to go uh, after the president himself. And, and what would be the difference between targeting sanctions specifically on Russian companies, you mentioned Roussel, uh, versus the oligarchs who might own those companies? I think this these two are highly related. Um, I think the Russian companies were are there already many of them <clears throat> under sanctions, whether it's individual company specific or sexual sanctions, where they cannot borrow more than, than, than a very a few weeks, really. I think it's a very few days. Effectively, they cannot borrow on the international capital markets already. Um, I think it's uh, more important to go after the individuals rather than companies. Uh, first of all, because it's easier to separate the interests, right? If you go after the companies, then you will definitely have a direct hit on international capital markets. You might still have that if you're going after the individual, but there are ways to mitigate that and prepare your trading partners and your sort of US European uh, partners uh, for that uh, eventuality. So I think that's um, 
you know, the individual sanctions probably will be much stronger than, than the corporate sanctions. Back in 2014, one of the potential sanctions actions would have been removal from SWIFT or blocking uh, the, the movement of funds through SWIFT to Russia. You'd mentioned earlier domestic payment systems uh, springing up in Russia. So is have they already mitigated against this? Have they already built a, uh, you know, a payments version of Fortress Russia to be able to avoid if, um, you know, kind of a removal from SWIFT were to happen today? Well, they made a lot of progress in that direction, but they're definitely not yet prepared uh, for international payments. So there have been three important developments. One is the change to the domestic uh, wholesale payment system. So before 2014, they had no way of uh, doing bank uh, transactions or sort of messaging without a global, a global payment system. Now they have a domestic payment system that is operated by a central bank, and it processes more than 20% of transactions already. Need be, they can probably go to 100% relatively quickly, and they will be able to send domestic messages among banks and continue the transfer without, without too much of a problem. Um, then they've also in, uh, implemented domestic MIR or PEACE uh, uh, card, which allows individuals also to use this card domestically and internationally in some of their uh, tourist locations popular with uh, Russian population. Again, it's about 20, 30% of those cards uh, global cards, uh, Russian cards transactions are going through that system. And finally, they are very much at the forefront of introducing digital ruble. They went through the extensive um, consultative process last year. Uh, they're going to into pilot this year, and then they will decide how quickly they want to introduce digital ruble. And that will also help them. Long story short, domestically, I think they're prepared. Internationally, it will be problematic to continue paying for Russian exports and Russia for its imports. Uh, in the, the final kind of sanctions angle that I wanted to talk about, too, is potentially export restrictions from the U.S. or, or other allies on certain technology. Microelectronics have been, have been focused on one, so slightly broader, I think, than a kind of a traditional sanction on military equipment. Um, I think that is a very important aspect. Uh, thank you for bringing it up, especially from the U.S., because U.S. has a lot of uh, ability to uh, do export controls. European Union doesn't. European Union ability to, exp to do export controls is really more country specific and generally at the EU level can only be limited to the military equipment. While e US can be much more uh, wide reaching, it can be chips, it can be technological equipment, it will have significant impact. Again, in the very short term, it's likely not going to have an impact. And even for the payment systems, they're trying to use domestic providers. Uh, but for the medium term, of course, uh, we started our conversation from low potential growth. That will bring Russia's potential growth even lower. If you're going to financial autarky, if you're going into economic and productivity autarky, how do you expect to growth and improve in isolation and a vacuum from the rest of the countries? And the final angle that I want to touch on, too, is, is what about natural gas? You've, we've talked throughout this on how Russia right now has benefited fiscally from high, high commodity prices. So if they, if they were to swing or if you have saw a change in consumer demand, particularly in Europe, what kind of position does that leave Russia in, you know, thinking on, it'll be on top of a number of these other sanctions options that we've talked about? So European Union, Europe is very reliant on Russian gas. So um, there, are, uh, there is a large number of countries, there is, uh, and even the core countries uh, rely about more than 50% of energy in, uh, ex imports on Russia. So as of now, it is not realistic. Even with the Green Deal, 
again, reliance on gas somewhat even increases, right? Of course, over the medium term, it might change over medium to the long term. So that is a very difficult scenario to think of. In theory, there are LNG terminals, including in the UK and Spain, um, I think in France and, and other countries, they're not at the full capacity utilization. And potentially, you know, Europe could supplement some of the uh, Russia's gas with, with LNG. But as of now, I think, especially in the winter, that would be uh, highly problematic. Uh, what from the Russia side, Gazprom has positioned itself as a reliable partner for Europe. And even through the Cold War, we haven't had disconnection from the Russia side uh, of the contra sanctions when there was an episode with Turkey. Again, Turkey was not disconnected from uh, Gazprom supplies. So it's also hard to imagine under what circumstances Russia would go and try to limit its gas supplies to Europe as well. Well, Lena, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this was enlightening, I think, for me and hopefully for everyone else listening. And we really appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for having me, Dylan. Horizon Scanning has been produced by Deutsche Bank and is intended for general information purposes only. By accessing Horizon Scanning, you confirm that you are entitled to do so in accordance with your own regulatory requirements. Any opinions, estimates or projections discussed in this podcast constitute the current judgment of the speaker at the time of recording and do not represent a formal or official view of Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank does not make any representations or warranties in respect of the currency, accuracy or completeness of any information included in this podcast or the reasonableness of any opinions expressed. Information included may not be complete or up to date for your purposes and is subject to change. For further disclosures and other important information, please visit research.db.com.